The nature of human beings is the need to build, grow, and change, to find new landscapes and terrain on which to call our own, whether it's our own backyard or something on a larger scale. The desire for legacy, for impact, is huge. How do we satisfy an innate human need with the challenges and the pressures already felt by the environment? What kind of architectural styles and techniques can help not hinder our planet? And what can we learn from the intelligence of nature? Hello everyone, my name is Monita Rajpal. Welcome to The Drawing Board, a WATG podcast where we explore the ideas, issues, and trends that are being discussed within the design community today, as well as among clients and customers. This episode is called Beyond Greenwashing, and joining me to explore the opportunities and challenges presented by achieving a sustainable project is Chiara Calafetti Lim, Vice President at WATG. Chiara brings three decades of global experience to her projects, which include urban planning, master planning, high-end retail, multifamily residential, and renovation work. While her passion is truly in the development of the design concept, she also includes branding, interior remodeling, and historic renovation as part of her continuously expanding skill set. Chiara, welcome to the podcast. I want to start out by asking you about the conversations that are being had now between your team and clients and how they've evolved when it pertains to sustainability. How have they changed? There's been quite a transition, I must say. Uh, I, I lived and, and worked in different environments. And I originally worked in Europe, and then I moved to the States and then Asia. In Europe, many years ago, we were talking about green architecture, and it was mostly dictated at that time by the energy cost, because already many years back, it was about saving electricity bills and installing, you know, solar panels on roofs. But that was pretty much it at that time. Then when I moved to California, it became more sophisticated, the conversation. Like at the beginning, in the 90s, people really didn't know what sustainability was in a sense like we know now. And when I was talking about I'm interested in green architecture, people didn't fully comprehend what I was trying to say. But then things like LEED came along and very organized systems, which helped us designers to really modulate and control and then eventually, you know, deliver design that meets certain criteria. At the same time, I would say that California was ahead of industry in, in, in general for like local authorities, requirements, design expertise to really push design in a sustainable in, in the environment that is sustainable and a sustainable strategy. When I moved to Asia, it was this was a few years ago. Priorities were somewhere else, but it has changed tremendously. And one thing that I can share is that I, I was at HICAP, that is one of the hospitality investment conference for South Asia Pacific area. Every single panel spoke about sustainability, every single one. And this was from financing to operation to technical aspects. So 
I think that really I'm very excited to say that the time is now. I see this world where I operate is ready for this change. You're asking how it changed my conversation with clients. I would say that clients are becoming more sophisticated. They're more aware. They understand both aspects. One is the finance because they are getting financial benefits if they develop a sustainable product for many reasons. One is local authorities and agreements. And then banking. Banking, you know, products have evolved. So they're getting financial benefits. But then also on the opposite end, they see how guest, how buyer, I mean, depending on what it is, if it's a residential it's buyer, if it's a hotel, it's guests that come to stay, do anticipate a certain level of sustainable thinking and strategy and application in the product. And they understand that it elevates their design, their product, their, their hotel, their residential development, and is fundamentally at this point aspected. So yeah, I, I see that big change to the industry. I know that, that there's the money aspect, right? There's always the money, the cost of something. There has to be a return on investment. Are there other elements, other things that perhaps stop some clients or projects to go in the way of being fully fully sustainable? Yes, I, I would say that in, in this region, there is a bit of confusion because there are so many different standards and so many different applicational governing agencies. And the other end, there is not much rigor in certifications and in controlling, you know, that the products are properly harvested or, you know, like when you look at the forest in Canada or in the States, you know that the timber that comes from this forest is truly certified. Here, like say when it comes from Indonesia, you have to really do your, your homework and it's really hard at times. So I would say that is a challenge to me. It's a challenge from a design perspective because there are so many different standards to design for. So let's say when we work in the Middle East, it's a certain thing. He, in Singapore is green mark. In China is another system. So it makes it a bit of a sometimes difficult because there's a bit of confusion. But I find that within the industry and within our client and the developers in general and the operators, there is more and more awareness and more and more sophistication. Like operators now, they do have chief of sustainability officer, the, the experts that really guide the process and demand certain things from developers. So I'm finally happy to see it coming together. It's not the same for everybody, Europe and Americas. I think the, the market is very mature in Asia or other regions that are developing is not as so. I would say for us, we try to apply as much sustainability thinking and strategies at the beginning, which are not necessarily linked to a technical component or a specific system or it's just basic knowledge that comes from orientation of buildings, uh, shade, natural shading, or things that don't cost more money. It's just a matter of how you design it. It's not importing a specific system from the West, which will cost them a lot more money. So it's about applying basic design 
thinking that it's really, in a way, it, to me, it reads the site, it reads the specific location, and it works by harvesting the, the knowledge of the place. Let's say if we work in a very humid place that has these heavy rains, what do you do with it? You know, how can you make it work for yourself? For yourself, or if you work in a place that is very arid and sunny, what do you do with it? So it's about adjusting and in a very simple way, but using the genius logic. It's like how things have been done for for years and for centuries, and apply to contemporary architecture wherever possible. It's really interesting because the environmental assessment of locations. It's very fluid, isn't it? In the sense that there is no one size fits all. How do you go about doing that kind of assessment? I would say, first of all, is the climate. Like, is it a place where there is a winter? Does it snow? Or is it a place where you're constantly on the equator? So throughout the year, it, it, it always the building has to work in the same way consistently, which in a, in a way is easier, right? You don't have to adjust to cold and hot weather. You, you're consistent, but then you deal with other issues like humidity and rain and so forth. So that will be the first assessment. The second, it's where is the building located or like the development? Is it in an urban setting or is it in a very remote setting? Very remote settings, which happens to us when we design very high-end product, they tend to be far away in remote islands, in places where there's no development. So you are creating a, a self-contained, isolated little world, very different than if you are in filling in an urban environment where you just plug in fundamentally you get everything from from the grid so each project is a bit different in that sense so it's climate and then location is it urban is it isolated and then i would say the type of project as well like a, a small development will be more attuned to certain kind of strategies because you're fundamentally creating a micro farm, let's say, or like a small little, is an extension of a residential experience. It's very boutique, very, very curated. While if you are developing something that is much bigger in an urban environment, then it's a, a different beast in a sense. You have to apply rules, very clear direction, very clear directive, very clear relationship with the environment and the climate. Like when you work in a city, everything has to be totally closed up and air conditioned and people don't expect anything other than that. But if you work with an isolated property a bit more remote, people are more flexible and they're open to the fact that there is natural ventilation and fans. You don't have air conditioning. So that gives us opportunities and um, we try to leverage them as much as we can. There are different types of architecture, aren't there? There is regenerative architecture where we look at nature as the building blocks for how uh, a structure will be built. Right? Yes. There is extractive architecture where you remove, take away in order to build. Yes. Then there's also reversible architecture where you yes. take an existing structure, dismantle, and use the, the components and yeah. recreate it. Yes, yes, yes. In a different way. If we look at each and one of them, if we look at regenerative architecture, there is so much that can be learned 
from nature. There is this intelligence that nature has that is extremely valuable in the built environment. Talk to me a little bit about that. You know, there are two different things. One is regenerative architecture and the other one might be perhaps biomimicry and learning from nature, right? So from a regenerative point of view, and I mentioned earlier, we do work in remote areas, but often, even though these areas are remote, they have been touched by humans before. And our job together with our consultants is to recreate as much as possible as close as possible to the origin of the land, right? So more and more, I see biodiversity consultants coming into play. I just recently worked on a project where they wanted a rewildering consultant. So it's almost, re. these are special location, but it's recreating the environment that is suitable for original species to thrive. And that usually, I mean, we do it with landscape, right? We do bring in our landscape consultants, our landscape team, and that is part of the outside of the building in a sense. But because of the fact that we are designing resort, I personally believe the inside and the outside need to constantly talk. So this is what we do to the outside. I would say for regeneration, this is an interpretation of mine, but let's say like in an urban environment, we do offer green roofs. So from where before perhaps there was just an old concrete building, we are rebuilding on top. And on top of it, we're creating a, a public space or a garden or like something where you, a lot of our hotels do have farms on top of the roof and they do sustain with microgreen their own uh, restaurants or they even sell, right? So before there was nothing, but in a way, nothing as in nothing green, we are regenerating, recreating what was there probably before the city existed. So it, it is good because of the green aspect, like you grow your own, like your microgreen, your maybe tomatoes, they come down from the roof and I'm serving it to you like an hour later, right? So it's super fresh and super, you know, sustainable. But also, I don't need to transport them from somewhere else. I'm not flying them from somewhere else. I'm cutting down my carbon footprint. I don't need packaging. I have one of my sous chefs going upstairs or, you know, some, some chef go upstairs, put in a basket and bring it down to the kitchen. So I don't need to throw away plastic after the process. So these are all very good things. And there are hotels where actually with the farm, they also have fishery kind of thing. So it's kind of like a self-sufficient system where the fish feed the plants and the plant fish. the fish. So, and then you also have the fish as part of this process in your cuisine. So of course, not for everything but good part of it. So in that sense, I see that we multiply and we regenerate. As far as deconstruct architecture, I would say that this is something that is we've been looking at for various reasons. One is just from a practical point of view, because things are so far away sometimes, having them coming as a kit of part is easier them on site in a sense and then you can demand them eventually and reuse them and I have personally worked on a project in Bali where it was an existing property and there was abandoned and we took over the property so instead of just demolishing everything and throwing everything away we took everything we could reuse and a few items or for example like a big massive beam steel beam that was there we 
cut it in half, and then we used it as you know, the header of some of the large openings for our hotel. Another thing we did, there were a lot of uh, little villas and that was taken apart and the timber of the roof was used to create screens for the facade. They had uh, service areas and we stripped it, meaning we took everything that could be used again and we applied to all the service spaces of the hotel. So all the doors were recycled from the site itself and used them in the new construction, as well as some of the fixtures, which were still in good condition. We used them for the service areas. So I think this is the advantage of being able to take apart and reuse as much as possible. So we did that. And again, for the gardens, we did the same thing. There were very mature trees, which were ending up in a place where we needed a building. So what we did, we had moved all the trees on the side, built a new development, which was quite large, and then repositioned those trees. So they were the same trees that been there for a long time. We just moved them and they were fine. They, they were, they did it very well. So we didn't lose any of them. So I would say that it's a bit of like deconstructing and constructing. As we know, as we've been seeing already, there is clear evidence that weather patterns have changed and will continue to change. We are experiencing extreme weather, you know, whether it is floods in some places, drought in others, warming temperatures and extreme cold as well. How do you start to think about when you're planning and designing future-proofing a building when we may not exactly know what kind of environment we're going to be in? Yes, there is this consensus that temperatures are warming. That is a fact. But what if other things are happening? We don't know that you know, there have been constant surprises in terms of tornadoes, hurricanes, and in places that didn't have that before. So how do you start to future-proof? What we do is we learn from facts and from examples. So, for example, you know, after the, the big tsunami that struck Sri Lanka, Indonesia, and, and the Maldives, one thing that we, we are doing is that all the properties that we designed that are close to the ocean they have additional setbacks, so they move back from the property, from, from the site of, you know, the high tide. They tend to be a bit higher to protect, you know, the property from waves and, and, and you know, those, those kind of king tides and special weather conditions, which used to happen once every hundred years, now they are more frequent, so we plan for that. Another thing that we do, we, we design buildings that do have weak points, meaning part of the structure and part of the design, the point that will release energy in case a tsunami waves will hit. So that instead of creating a big destruction everywhere, you're almost channeling and then letting it out. So instead of fighting it, you are embracing in a sense and letting it go through. And then the other thing we need to do, for example, we need to, on coastal areas, we need to think about places for guests to be safe, places for supply to survive an event like a flood, right, a tsunami. So we do add vertical let's say towers, I mean, objects where you can go a few floors up and you could survive for a certain amount of time. So that also from an operation perspective, they need to plan survival. And the survival is either 
it, like I say, from the weather. So whatever happens if there is too much water, but then it's survival if there's not enough water. So we, in all our projects at this point, we do have reservoirs for water survival for three days, four days for guests to be able to have water, although perhaps the system is shut down. It's not easy to anticipate. And as you see, places that might have never experienced hot weather at a level that we saw in, in London, like, you know, like 40 degrees or in North Europe, buildings are not built for that. So it's a big challenge. We are slowly, I would say, slowly working with the authorities. They are implementing regulations to make sure that buildings are upgraded with systems that serve and adjust climate control for people's survival. But yeah, it's a bit of a challenge because it's moving very fast. And I think that's why sustainability is so important and resilience and um, future-proofing. And really, I think we cannot design without this in mind. It goes back to exactly what you were saying in the beginning, though, in terms of having a globally unified approach uh, or a set of standards, as opposed to what a journalist described the conversations around sustainability as an epidemic of vagueness. You mentioned the Maldives. I'm really curious about the Maldives, actually, because there seems to be continuous building on it, right? That's a very simplified way is that because yes it's a very i would say lucrative business so i believe maldives and i'm not an expert on that but believe maldives has the fastest return on investment for developers it is sinking but uh not not that fast um return on investment is in few years so people make their money but what I find that is exceptional in the Maldives is that there are small resorts that are making a big difference in everyday's life for the locals. So yes. a problem that we don't see, like you see the, the beautiful you know, resort, but you don't think about, okay, where does the trash go? Currently, there is one island close to the capital where they burn everything and everything is remote. So you have to put it on a boat and then the boat has to go to this island and then they burn it. So there are operators who are teaching local groups, grassroots, right, how to do proper recycling, how to repurpose, how to upcycle, how to minimize the use of plastic. And through their program, see, this is where I, I like it a lot in a sense that it's intangible, but a little bit of the fee that guests pay goes to educate people locally. And that makes a difference because I think you don't, hopefully there's no plastic bottles anymore, for example. Or another thing that is happening, which is great, is that there, as you said, there are more and more people going there and there is a lot of fishing happening for the restaurants. So there are these associations which are helping and teaching local fishermen how to be sustainable in their process. So it's not saying, sorry, you cannot fish. But how can you do it so that your kids, if they choose to, they can still do it? So there are all these initiatives that are parallel to hospitality, which I, I, I'm learning to appreciate. So it's about education. It's about spreading knowledge. It's about offering opportunities to 
the people in the region where you operate. Yeah, I, I guess unless you read about it, it's not well publicized in general, but it's happening quite a bit. And I think that's fantastic. And and the other thing I might say that you, you mentioned about standards and general, generalization, to me, what I find is knowledge is missing, right? So I attend once, you know, I attended recently like a, a talk between heads of different industries, very different industries. And I, I was saying, oh, you know, I think you really need to do something to educate your team because it's the first step. If you don't know, you don't know. And this person actually quite up up there in position told me, no, no, but we know, we know that we need to recycle plastic and we should minimize the use of bottles. And I'm like, yeah, that's just the tippy tip of one thing. There's so much that can be done and we don't know. And until you don't, until you know, you, you don't do anything about it. Within our team is education, 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 education. We want as many people as possible that are accredited, in the various systems, it doesn't matter, but we want that for, for them because then if they know, they approach the design differently. I would say it's a constant evolution, but being able to reach a broader audience will make a difference. And, and I think it's generational as well. I am very confident that the younger generation is way, I mean, they know, they are more aware. Like my daughter says, though, is that we're not saving the planet. We have to save ourselves. The planet will survive without us. That's pretty profound, isn't it? Yeah. So by, by shifting that perspective, suddenly you see the urgency, right? It's about survival of our species. It's in a sense, it's like the, the world, the, the planet will make it. We just will die of drought or cold or floods, but the planet will reset itself. At WATG, what's interesting about the firm, the way the founders embarked on projects was always with that idea or the, the foundation of sustainability in mind. So basically they, they, they walked the talk from the get-go. One of the examples, the Ramada Great Barrier Reef Resort in 1986, which one of the founders of WATG, Greg Tong, worked on, he said, it doesn't take a megabuck insurance company. You need not be a development giant to put together a well-designed, environmentally responsible resort hotel that will attract a good operator, command favorable rates, and make money. How is WATG doing when it comes to working with clients to be adventurous and forward thinking? Yes, uh, uh, it's good that you're bringing this up because I think, yeah, WATG has been walking, you know, the, the talk, do you think? <laughs> walking the walk since, since ever. I applaud the, our founders' sensibility towards sites and the beauty of it and towards local culture. There are projects where you were mentioning the Ramada Great Barrier Reef Resort, which is a simple hotel, but the innovative idea at that time was do not cut the tree. And people were like, what do you mean don't cut the trees? No, do not cut the trees. You already have what makes this place fantastic. And you don't need to buy it. You don't need to bring it in. It's there. So this is one thing we keep telling our clients as well. Do not touch the site show us what you have, bring us there, let us look what is that is unique and existing and natural, like a big tree or like a pond of water or like, and let's build around it. I had a project which um, in the Philippines, which we started 
built it, we designed it, we designed it to a concept design and um, the client was pushing go fast, go fast. So we didn't go to the site, we did this concept and then we went to the site to present it. And sure enough, we walked there the, the first morning we, you know, get out and look and we say, okay, we have to start from zero. We have to restart like the design process because the client didn't document the beauty of these oak trees that were there. And we didn't know that the trees were there. Nobody showed us anything. So we just maximized the volume and the square footage and did our job to maximize the investment. But the beauty of it was lost. So this is one thing that we really constantly say, do not touch the site. Clients and developers tend to think that if you flatten everything and it becomes tabula rasa to them, it's a great thing, easier to build, but it loses the unicity and the beauty of it. So that's something that, we we do and and also like our founders i would say we do implement some form of like social sustainability or responsibility in the sense that we appreciate the uniqueness of local culture and tradition and try to embed in our design the know-how and the technique or um, the unique of a specific group that lives nearby. You know, uh, we find that very special. What kind of projects have you worked on that where you felt that all the ambitions from a sustainability perspective were achieved in your mind? Is that even possible? Is that even a question that one can even answer? I would say like everything else in life, there are always compromises. It's impossible to tick all the boxes. I do have projects that have tried really hard to tick as many boxes as possible. So as I say, first of all, is to uh, appreciate the site and um, amplify it. So don't touch trees or like have a proper analysis of the existing trees and endangered types and so forth. So work around it. The the other thing is really to reintroduce species that perhaps were not there and make sure that we recreate the right balance. And that naturally attracts local fauna that perhaps was not there anymore. And there could be small bees and butterflies or, you know, little mammals. Moving on site lightly, keeping it lifted so the, the grounds are kept clear in a sense. And underneath, things can move, right? Animals can move and trees, branches can, tree roots can grow. And, and then it's using local materials as much as possible. That's the, the other aspect, including a material language that is local. So you don't have to fly it from somewhere else. You don't need to import it. You have the local artisan build it in a sense. Of course, technology has changed and it's much more sophisticated. But there are elements of softness that can be the same as they were 100 years ago. Through the use of technology internally, we do site analysis. Like just uh, to mention another project, this was a project in the desert where we thought, okay, wind is going to be a great thing because it's going to be cooler. So we designed this building, initial concept, funneling the wind in a certain area of the project. And then... In parallel, we were running these 3D wind analysis 
which before we couldn't do. I mean, years ago, there was a wind tunnel where you put your model, but now you do it all through computer simulation. And we realized that that was actually not that good because it was intensifying and making it too fast. And depending on the season, it was not the right thing. So by studying the wind analysis of the specific location and the building, we modified the building to respond to that. So technology in that sense is helping and guiding the design process to respond to the site orientation, to guide where the fenestration is, to uh, guide the form itself of the building. And then, of course, depending on the budget of the client, but there's so much now you can have like glass that is tinted, that adjusts and, and darkens or lightens depending on the amount of light that comes in or, you know, just, you know, motorized shading system, facade that do move depending on the sun condition to reduce the heat, you know, the heat gain and so forth. So that through technology, definitely we see it. Harvesting of water and managing the amount of water needed for irrigation or like, you know, reusing water, gray water, treatment of water. Or like we do have a project where we are trying to experiment with not desalination per se to, uh, you know, get water from the sea, but like capturing the moisture from water. And there was this uh, project that we saw as a person that is experimenting with this um, in North Africa. And we felt like, yeah, we need to try to test it. But then the hard thing is to convince a client that this is a test bed for something. Then they get a bit nervous because... Of course, they want proven technology that is not too expensive. So once in a while, a client comes that has strong motivations to try something different, and then it pushes the envelope. But that comes once in a while. Not not all projects are like that. So are those the kind of projects that excite you? What kind of projects actually excite you? I would say I, I, I well, all of it in a sense. But I do like very much projects that are unique um, and they they allow us to discover a place and I really as mentioned find inspiration very much in local traditions I love world because it's so diverse I'm curious right so if I get to a place that I've never been I want to learn as much as possible and I want to see what's different here what is special and how can I apply it to projects and so that is what excite me in a sense and I've been doing this profession for a very very long time but it's every time it's a new challenge mm-hmm. and what I'm seeing also more recently is the use of technology that we mentioned which we didn't have before very recently I've been playing we've been playing with artificial intelligence we're learning from it and it's baby steps right how can this help us how is improving our process our design process or how is it just questioning whatever we do right would they take over would it take over but we we've been working on it with it for a couple of projects and it's interesting to see how it changes a bit the way we process design but I would say in general as I say it's something different like a new location something that I don't know totally gets me excited because I get to learn new things the reason I ask is because I believe in any endeavor you know we bring something of ourselves to the work that we do and we also get something from the work that we do right it's a two-way street so who we are as people 
our the passions that we have, our interests, often informs the kind of work that we then deliver. Tell me about some of your personal passions, one of which is that you love to make jewelry. Yes, I, I do. I do. I'm not no expert, but I've been playing with it. I'm actually wearing one thing now, which it. is, you know, it's a is an upcycle necklace from leftover leather samples from the interior designer team. So wow. I always, <laughs> yes, they had these box of samples, and they say we don't know what to do with it. So I took the samples and then I cut them up and then make this little thing but I do like the crafting aspect of jewelry very much and I like the history aspect of it because um, again different culture have different type of jewelry and different material and techniques so I took silversmith classes to, to learn from scratch like how do you weld how do you forge I do wire um, metal wire crochet, which become these little, you know, bubbles of interpretation of nature in a sense. Most of it is like floral, marine life. I find these interesting because is that a presentation of who you are as a person? Is it a representation of how you interpret what you see? And is also filtering through years of history of what like in the background a person carries, right? So what have you observed as a child? What is that your mother taught you or what have you seen when you grew up? And it, it and then what new influences weave into it so it becomes like a concoction of all these different layers and I find uh, I use this actually quite a bit in my in my projects as mentioned I like weaving as a storytelling exercise because like this crafting to me it's a exercise of patience exercise of time but is also used to be at least before a shared experience with other people around you and often these people were women women who were telling stories and uh, is an unwritten kind of like science and tradition that is taught just by looking and doing and copying right and then reinventing and I find that I, I've used this in several projects mm -hmm. where I go and look at traditional weaving and patterns and these patterns could be from craft to city roads and streets to the way a particular tree grows and how the roots or like the branches are or the bark and then I extrapolate from it and then it becomes a unique feature of a project so I do the same thing with my art and I experiment that way so I I like the process and I like the reason why and I find particularly with this kind of craft I am a bit traditionalist in the sense that pleasure to me comes from making it so it's the process of making it that is really interesting but it's very organic and and not like if you will ask me to do the same thing twice it would be hard in a sense I would have to think very hard That's yeah yeah it. it's the stories that you're telling through your work through your art it's how we live, isn't it? It's storytelling. And so much of what we do is about the future, protecting and changing a future, but we learn from the past. Yes. Everything that we do, it can only happen by what we do today. 
It's, it's been an absolute privilege to be able to talk to you about all of this. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Monita. It's been really, really nice to spend time with you and to get to share a little bit of what I do. Thank you. Kiara Calafetti Lim speaking to me from the WATG office in Singapore. You've been listening to The Drawing Board, a WATG podcast. I'm Monita Rajpal. Thank you for listening. <laughs>